Communicating science starts with a conversation. That's one of the goals we had for this podcast. By telling the stories of communities that must prepare for and find ways to adapt to climate change, we may find solutions that give us the best chance at survival and help save the places millions of people call home. We as human beings learn from stories, and so storytelling is perhaps the best way of communicating messages. But storytelling is also powerful because it allows you to come into everyone's space. Climatologist Leslie Ann Dupini Giroux says her job is to listen to these stories and put what people observe and remember into context with today's changing climate. When folks share with me like my parents remember this or my grandparents saw that or it's kept weather records for days on end and so you're part of that cooperative network that helps us to understand how things are changing. We know someone who keeps records like these, Maura Sperry. But if it keeps going the way it's going it seems like I would say in it looks like 30 to 50 years I doubt these houses will be viable. Really Remember, do. we met her in the beginning of this journey together. Her home is in Mastic Beach, where the floods are so common that she names the ones that reach her house. If you're not from here, you might imagine that all of Long Island is multi-million dollar mansions on the shore, but Mastic Beach is a largely working class community containing deep American history. It was the home of William Floyd, Long Island's signer of the Declaration of Independence. It was later developed in the 1920s as a summer community for blue collar Italian American families. But Mastic Beach itself wasn't really put on the map until 2010. That's when a group of residents petitioned to have more control over their land, and later that year incorporated Mastic Beach into its own village government. The incorporation of Mastic Beach Village was actually partially to develop the waterfront. This was met with a giant tidal wave of opposition. Morris Sperry, the village's former mayor, wanted to turn that plan for development on the waterfront into one of conservation and climate action instead. You are pushing a giant ball up that hill. You know, that is a big push, but we have to do it, folks. Otherwise, you're not going to want to live here because it's just going to smell like a giant septic system. The independent village government dissolved after just six years. And in the end, it was a failed attempt to address climate change, but one that was at least trying to solve a problem decades in the making. Many communities on Long Island face systemic inequalities in their ability to respond to climate change. Later this episode, we'll visit the first inhabitants here, the Shinnecock tribe, to explore this idea. But first, we've invited some residents of Mastic Beach to come together to tell their stories and be better heard. This is Higher Ground from WSHU Public Radio. I'm J.D. Allen. Hi, I'm Davis Donovan, host of the WSHU podcast, Off the Path. I explore all kinds of hidden nooks and crannies and fascinating history on the road from New York to Boston. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find Off the Path from New York to Boston on WSHU Public Radio.
It's a 10-foot climb up to Mora's front door. Her partner opens the door. Since the village government dissolved in 2016, Mora Sperry has spearheaded environmental advocacy in her neighborhood. She created the Mastic Beach Conservancy to protect the over six miles of public recreational waterfront that's feet from her home. The fierce woman that Mora Sorry, is. So that's uh, I'm, your, your catch. I was just explaining what's okay. going on with Violet's Cove. She already hit the ground running with my team and the other guests we invited to introduce us to Mastic Beach wetlands that she wants yeah, to conserve. It's very densely populated in here, but we are literally surrounded by amazing, diverse, biodiverse nature. I mean, when you look here, as you go around here, are you from here? She's your neighbor. <laughs> I live like five minutes away. <laughs> Amelia Brandamarty grew up in Mastic Beach. She just graduated from the high school. I've been here all my life. I've never moved. And, you know, I found out that I actually like Long Island, but that was only when I got a car. Then Amelia discovered the central role the environment plays in that enjoyment. So she joined Students for Climate Action, a regional advocacy group that started on Long Island. She says young people shouldn't need a car to enjoy it here. You know, if you make this community more walkable, then you're using less cars and, you know, the carbon emissions are less. Amelia also brings that advocacy home to her parents, who she describes as hardworking. Mora says that's much like the other families here who live in this blue-collar community, but work in wealthier parts of the island. We house, we feed, we educate all of the workers' children, like almost all of them who work in the Hamptons. A giant part of it's coming from this peninsula. In Mastic Beach, a two-bedroom house runs at least $275,000, cheaper than the rest of Long Island and way cheaper than the Hamptons, where prices exceed $20 million the closer you get to the water. Still, Mastic Beach is a shot at the American dream for many. We step outside to greet two more guests, local NAACP President Georgette Greer-Key and Allison Branco with the Nature Conservancy. We last saw Allison in Montauk a few episodes ago. My team organized this gathering to bring together many of the themes we've been exploring on higher ground and to have an honest discussion about the systems that are holding back places like Mastic Beach. First of all, our communities, the communities that we're talking about, it's like someone has written the narrative for us and we have to deconstruct that narrative that they have written for us that one says things that are derogatory to who we are as a people and as a community. Georgette, the NAACP president, says Mastic Beach gets a bad rap for petty crime and drug use. Tackling those problems were two more reasons for the village's incorporation in 2010. They said blight in the community encourages young people to act out. Amelia is 17 years old. You know, because there's not so much to do around here, I was always... I was horrified by the people that grew up here. You know, as a kid, it was like, oh, people live in this dump their entire lives. Am I next? You know, am I ever going to be able to get out? And, you know, it's not about getting out. It's about, you know, making better where you are sometimes. I, I just wanted us to kind of like collectively brainstorm knowing the, the context of the area and what we want for the future and 
what needs to be protected, and that means all of us are protected. It, it, it seems like just an impossible task. I mean, it costs so much money. That's absolutely right. It is. Um, it's a big effort, and it, it's not easy for people to come together. You know, when you have a job or two or three jobs, you know, all of the rest of your life to worry about. Um, it's not easy to come together and, and sort of give your input on what you want your community to look like. What environmentalist Allison Branco is saying about the difficulty of bringing people together is evident here. All of our guests live within a few miles of each other, and all are concerned about the environment and the effects of climate change. Yet they've never met one another until now. So I think now that so many coastal communities are facing extra challenges because of sea level rise, it's even more important that we make that possible, and that, that does take a lot of effort. And Mastic Beach is a special place to have a conversation about coastal communities for one particular reason. All of its coastline is publicly accessible. Most of Long Island and really the whole United States, most of the coastline is privately owned. So no one can access it. And it's the management of it is done in a super selfish, me, me, me kind of a way. Um, but when you can have public ownership of the land, that doesn't happen anymore. And you can prioritize things like healthy coastal environments that protect the people, protect the habitat, and are really better for everyone in the long run. Allison says people are sometimes just stuck for very basic economic reasons. Sometimes you hear the less well-informed people say things like, oh, the whole place is going underwater, it doesn't matter. And that's not true. There are just certain places where people need help to move to higher ground and get safer, but the community as a whole can continue to be very vibrant here. Georgette argues all taxpayers should have the right to government assistance from some of the programs we've discussed throughout the series. Even though they might be controversial to those who don't live here, but who bear some of the costs. Especially if you're you're tied to the land ancestrally, if you're tied to the land because this is where you grew up. I mean, is it a right or, you know, is it, you know, a privilege? I don't think that it's, it's a privilege. It's a right because you own it, and especially if you're paying taxes for certain things, um, this is why the government came up with those special programs. Federal programs helped residents rebuild and raise their homes and businesses after Superstorm Sandy. That gave them access to affordable flood insurance. A state program even purchased flooded houses at market price from people who just wanted to walk away. Mastic Beach got this help too, but people of color received the least. What shouldn't happen is all of the red tape and all of the other shenanigans as far as, you know, what happened with those programs and not making them really streamlined for the people who are the victims. Black residents historically face more barriers to economic recovery. They are denied bank loans more than any other racial groups. Latino residents are next. Georgette says people of color often lack the financial resources to recover from extreme weather, like bank savings, access to a line of credit, and the ability to borrow from family and friends. They also trust the government the least to be able to help them. I think about who historically is barred from getting these loans. It all has to do with your assets, your, your ability and mobility within the economic factors. And that's just not, you know, brown and black people. That's people who have been on the margins for years. And that's part of why this marginalized community sought to take more control over the laws and services available to them 
by incorporating their own village government. Once they established the village of Mastic Beach in 2010, Mora, the former mayor, says residents were told the operating budget for the village would be $600,000 and taxes would not increase to fund programs and services they wanted to put in place. They told them that they could have a village government, but their taxes would not go up, which is a complete lie. And it was the climate resilient infrastructure that we explored in earlier episodes that sank the village financially from the start. Over 100 storm drains, 84 miles of road, and the six-mile waterfront, as well as everything else it takes to run a village, cost over $3 million in its first year. You can't have a village government without raising taxes. Especially when the cost of doing business goes up because of climate change. I mean, the, the village had to endure a whole lot of coastal damage and damage to communities in that time. The village of Mastic Beach was incorporated. A year later, Irene came and did tremendous damage down here and was kind of the precursor to how bad it was going to get a year later. And then they had Sandy. They did a terrible job <laughs> of trying to maintain these dirt roads. So yes, being a village government when you don't know what you're doing is difficult. Mora's final proposed budget as mayor exceeded $4.7 million. It would have raised taxes up to $300 a household to maintain the roads and storm drain infrastructure. People petitioned for her to resign. They instead voted to dissolve the village the next year. The incorporation of Mastic Beach Village is just one failure out of the hundred incorporated villages on Long Island. Allison says for coastal communities, this municipal accountability is an effort to better control what happens in their backyard. You know, rather than just sort of let the water come and see what happens to us, what we really need to do is create a new vision for ourselves, and that requires everyone in the community um, to be a part of it. Incorporation might not be the answer for every community, but organizing to have community voices heard is a start. Over two decades ago and a few towns over, civic organizations and other residents in eastern Long Island wanted a way to preserve wilderness. Georgette says they pushed elected officials to come up with a steady source of revenue that towns could use to purchase environmentally sensitive land for conservation. Environmentalists, conservationists, historic preservationists, and we have to be together because these developers are coming for us one by one. And not that all development is bad development. We need smart development. We need to talk to one another. In 1991, a state ballot referendum vote established a new tax on real estate transactions to preserve open space and eventually to address water quality infrastructure. Over the last 20 years, it's generated over $1.7 billion and more than 10,000 acres have been preserved. But not every community has access to that money equally. Now, how do we incorporate that in other places like Mastic Beach? So with this amount of money, you mean to tell me that there is nothing that we can't do for a community like this with pristine property that we can't preserve for our environment? We need to figure out how are we leaving this for the next generation? Take Amelia, for example. She's heading off to college in Massachusetts. She was unsure if she would come back to Long Island, but after getting involved with the student climate group, she feels connected to this coastal community. The most active people in the community have been there here their entire lives, and they, they're invested because of that. Um, so you can't just have people that are 
you know, coming in and doing all the work for you, you are responsible for your own community. That makes me like almost teary-eyed. It, it really does. We are we are intertwined. You know, people from around the world come to Long Island to live. Why should we have to move? Because we feel like things are changing. Because we're not doing anything to save it. We're not doing anything to make sure that even if you go away to school and you come back with this fancy degree, you'll have a job. You'll be able to buy a home. No, we're supposed to be leaving a better place for the generation and instead we've given them a pile of crap, literally, to deal with. And Georgette says there's an even deeper historical perspective to all of this. Let us acknowledge that we are on indigenous land and they have taught us long ago, but nobody listens to them, just like nobody listens to us, of how to be incorporated with nature. But we can change that. We can, Earth can replenish itself if we just stop abusing it. So we end our discussion here at Mastic Beach, say goodbye to our hosts, and head to another community that struggles to be heard on climate change, the Shinnecock Indian Nation on eastern Long Island. WSHU delivers what you need, when you need it. Trusted news, reporting, and culture that keeps you accurately informed and authentically inspired. It's what we're here to do and what you count on. I'm WSHU All Things Considered host Bill Buckner. Your financial support gives our reporters the resources to separate fact from falsehood and news from the noise. Thank you for listening and supporting WSHU Public Radio. We're stronger together. We are at a traffic light on Montauk Highway, turning into Shinnecock Territory. All of Long Island was once home to 13 indigenous tribes. The Shinnecock have the most land, a small 750-acre territory in the heart of the Hamptons. There's a stark difference in the houses we pass while driving on Shinnecock land. You can fit an entire single-family home here inside the garage of one of those multi-million dollar mansions in the Hamptons. We park the car and walk by a few houses. There's chipped paint and vinyl siding hanging from many exteriors. The houses are also a lot closer together than in the more luxurious Hamptons nearby. Oh, it is unsustainable. It's unsustainable everywhere, really. It's not sustainable at all. We are returning here once again to meet Danielle Hobson Begun and her fellow tribal members. They've already introduced us to their kelp farming operation, which produces a fertilizer that's safer for the environment. But this visit, we want to widen the discussion and find out more about the Shinnecock and their history. Tila Trogue, another Shinnecock kelp farmer we met, was especially passionate about replacing chemical fertilizers that are used here to keep Hampton's homes pristine while stormwater runoff pollutes nearby bays. We have to take action now. We should have been taking action, but if we don't take action now, then we're going to face serious consequences of um, sea level rise. There will be no way to mitigate or adapt. They have every reason to be frustrated. Federal maps show up to three quarters of their territory could be lost to sea level rise by 2050 and more frequent extreme weather will accelerate that process. This is really 
been at our front door for a lot longer, I think, than the rest of the population. And so um, we're really forced to spring into action to, to, to mitigate and adapt. For me, it has um, been very scary that that's what's happening. The reality of it is so frightful that it's almost paralyzing. And I have found, and for our group, that this is one way that we can take action. Rebecca Genia is the elder of the group. She voices a slightly deeper perspective. If humans do not right this wrong, the environment will. We can get something done to accomplish this, this mission to stop the insanity that's, you know, bombarded our beautiful mother. Because if we can't drink the water and we can't eat the fish and the shellfish and everything, then we're all doomed. And because she has a right to clean herself, if I throw mud in your face, you have a right to go find some clean water and wash yourself. Well, if we hurt Mother Earth, she has a perfect right to heal herself and cleanse herself. Unfortunately, people are getting washed away and they're getting, you know, killed by it. I explained that we want to talk about the systemic inequalities in their ability to respond to climate change, like the conversation we had in Mastic Beach. They're a bit hesitant. Tila says it needs to start by acknowledging that Shinnecock people have had a history of being mistreated and that the same environmentally unsustainable development of white suburban America we already explored had its first effects on the indigenous peoples of Long Island. We Shinnecock people are paying the price for that. We've already showed the correct way to do things and it's been completely exploited. Saying that, well, we should listen to our indigenous communities that will be able to tell us how to right this wrong, that is a a hopefully well-meaning statement, but as you're pointing out, it's like, we've been trying to do that, but you just haven't listened. And that must make it all that more frustrating. Not only did they not listen, but they we were told we were wrong. Our way is the way to do it. Your way is not. And we were put into a box and pushed even deeper into this swamp area. And it's, it's cost everyone. Tila, who's also an indigenous sovereignty attorney, tells me to prepare for a lesson that includes a more complete version of history. We do not need to look too far back in history for the moment the Shinnecock Indian Nation was put on the map by the federal government. The tribe has always been here, but it only received federal recognition in 2010 after a lengthy approval process. Even in this struggle, this fight that we had with the United States to um, have them recognize our sovereignty over our land, um, a lot of the documentation that we used to prove who we were were transactions and disputes about um, the local people taking this resource from us. This resource, the land, water, and wildlife that white settlers from the Massachusetts Bay Colony claimed as their own when they arrived in 1636. We took a lot of pity on them. They were starving to death, they were freezing to death, and um, they, smelled. they smelled, they had no sewage treatment. We really, you know, wanted to help them, and so we saw them freezing to death. We showed them how to insulate their homes with seaweed. We showed them how to 
fertilize their crops with seaweed as a fertilizer. We have already showed the correct way to live in harmony. The tribe even worked out a deed for the settlers for eight square miles of land. The town of Southampton was born in 1640, over a hundred years before the birth of the United States. Within two years, the settler population grew and encroached the tribal boundaries. The town passed its first alienation law to reduce conflict. It was designed so that no individual settler could purchase or alienate any type of property right from indigenous people without a higher level of consent. But settlers found a way to go around the law. They would punish Shinnecock women who spoke out of turn while stirring petty crime with men with the introduction of alcohol to the tribe. Designed to alienate women from their traditional matriarchal power and um, put that into the hands of men and then get them intoxicated and have them sell land. When you really take a closer look, and, and um, I encourage everyone to do so, look at the early colonial records of the place where you live because if they're anything like this place, they're filled with records of genocide, records of enslavement, records of treating people who don't have white skin as objects. These tactics were used to strip away land from enslaved or convicted Shinnecock. Word of a war between indigenous tribes and settlers in New England, King Philip's War in the late 1600s, further strained the relationship between the Shinnecock and Southampton. Rebecca says the tribe was frightened and under duress reached an agreement with the town for a thousand-year lease. It forced them off of sacred ancestral land, the Shinnecock Hills, into the corner of the Hamptons where they are today. So what they did here when they relocated us and shoved us off the uh, our beautiful hills, when like 90% of our tribe already dead in the ground and murdered and we were supposed to die of swamp fever within two generations. But we survived genocide and everything else you can imagine. For instance, the tribal members were employed, forced to dig the Shinnecock Canal in 1892 as a way to connect the Peconic Bay in between Long Island's Twin Forks with the Atlantic Ocean. The canal has become a spot for prime real estate and townhouses. Our people helped build that canal. And if you think it's easy digging a canal without payloaders and bulldozers, there was not, none of that back in the day. So you can imagine what kind of blood, sweat, and tears. We survived all of that. There might be only a handful of us left, but we st still survived it. There are about 1,500 Shinnecock left in the U.S. About half live on the territory on Long Island. Generations alive today say a lot needs to happen to rebuild the relationship between the tribe and suburbia and the impact on the environment. For instance, Danielle grew up in the middle of a potato field, an important crop on the island in the 20th century. And we would come inside when they would spray. So you have to close everything down. And we knew to do that, but they never told us that it was unsafe to us. Farmers in the mid-1900s required heavier pesticides to grow potatoes on Long Island because a changing climate brought new invasive pests. I don't know what it's done to me genetically. I don't want to know what it's going to do to my children's children, not to mention just the everyday consumption and what I've been breathing in for a long time. 
For decades, the Shinnecock have called for a moratorium on the development of this sensitive ecological and ancestral area. Since 2019, the town has taken a serious look at land use and eventually in 2021 returned a small parcel of just a few acres atop Shinnecock Hills, where the tribe's ancestors are buried. The rules of war are if you devastate a community and a people by acts of war, which they committed on us, it's your responsibility to help improve things, to help fix things. And they don't want to lift a finger to help Shinnecocks because we're a sovereign nation, so it's a double-edged sword as far as they're concerned. But their longtime call for a development ban is now in conflict with the tribe's own economic development goals. Just over a decade ago, the federal recognition guaranteed their right to develop their land after centuries of being held back. And now they have had plans for billboards, a hotel and casino, and marijuana cultivation. The tribe says they can do this with smart development with the environment in mind. Danielle says she can do her part to restore the ecosystem with the kelp farm. But to continue living on the coast, she says the community will have to work together across sovereign nations to plan for the future. They're not meant to live or remain that close to the sea for long, forever. Nothing will last near the sea. Next episode, we'll explore that thought, that nothing will last near the sea, and we'll take a look at what the future holds for coastal communities that believe they are not going anywhere. You are who you be, what you need, why you talking to me? Don't be core, I'm a needle to the weave. Better talk or you'll fall through the seams. Spit it out, what's your play? Think you're slick with your bag or what a tricks? I'm not fooled by the shape of your lips, just a suit in the shape of a tick. Higher Ground is produced and mixed by Sabrina Grone and me, J.D. Allen, with editing from Harriet Jones. Kelly Hills Mucky and Sarah Ruberg did fact-checking and research. Music is composed by Samuel Davies and Eric Harper. Graphic art by Joshua Joseph. This podcast was made possible by the Allen Alda Center for Communicating Science. Higher Ground is a production of WSHU Public Radio. For more, go to WSHU.org. The next episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. So it up, close a rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know to start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why. There isn't nothing here at all. Sew it up, close the rip, put a nice little plaque on the slip. I can sew like a Vincent Van Gogh. No one needs ever know to start the show. Have you found what you lost? Have you lost what you found? Do you really understand how you sift for a love in the sand? Like a leaf inside the wind. And you go where it tells you to go. But you never wonder why There isn't nothing here at all